Good morning, church. It's really glad you're here this morning. Those who are maybe here for the first time in a long time or the first time ever, a special welcome to you. Um, just kind of further to what Howard said about our coming day of prayer, focusing on uh, praying for the global church, the uh, persecuted church. I know this last week he was talking about praying for certain areas of the world where there was some acute need, and I think one was the nation of Iran, one of the most oppressed churches, and um, also one of the quickest growing churches. And I don't think it's, it's by coincidence, Daniel and I, we were on Friday in the, in the city at a, at a pastor's gathering, and we met a guy, an Iranian believer, who'd only been in the city for, in the country for a couple of weeks. And uh, he was a convert to Christ in, in Iran, and uh, started to like, uh, give you a Christian leader in the country, and was imprisoned for a period of time, and uh, finally was able to leave the country, and he's come to Canada. And so we're in conversation with him. We'd love for him to be with us Wednesday evening just to share his story so we can hear from someone who has been persecuted and knows what that's like, can encourage us, can share with us, and can help us understand how we can pray for people like him. And uh, so we're in conversation with him. We hope it's going to work for him to be with us Wednesday. So I hope that um, if you're able, you can come join us for that time and and uh, we have a bunch of these wristbands out there. Um, it's in the shape of a uh, barbed wire, but it, it's rubber. It feels very comfortable. Uh, these are wristbands that remind us to pray for the persecuted church. It says, remember them on here. We are commanded by God to remember those who suffer for Christ's name. And um, we want to we obey that. We want to be faithful. So this is just a little helpful aid for me when I wear this. I look at I remember those, my brothers and sisters in the world, that could use some prayer, and I pray for them. And so, if that's something you would like, just as a, an aid in prayer, they're available at the resource center after the service. Um, go and pick one up, only if you're going to wear it, and if you're going to use it to pray for those people. Let me ask you a question, church. Um, what would have to be true in your life today for you to have joy? What would have to be true in your life today for you to live a joyful life? Like, what would it take? What would need to change? I've got some family members that have currently been vacationing in Hawaii and lovingly sending pictures to the family of their fun. And so each day I look at these pictures of the beach and the water and the tropics and the food, and I'm not going to lie. There's been a part of me that just when I see that, I go, oh, if only, if only I was there. If only I could just escape all the responsibilities and worries and whatever else that's going on in my life, and if I could just be in a place like that, I could, yeah, I think I could be joyful. So for you, where you're at in life, like, what would need to change for you to feel like you could live in joy? You know, there was a guy in the Bible, his name was Solomon, he was a king, and he had the power to um, get whatever he wanted to get. And so he kind of tried this out. He tried to pursue joy in his life by getting whatever his heart desired. And uh, it's recorded for us, don't turn there, but in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon talks about how um, he was on this pursuit of joy. And he built for himself all these grand building projects as king to try to find joy in what he could build. And he, um, he gathered a whole bunch of slaves to serve him. And he amassed a great wealth. And he surrounded himself with a harem of beautiful women, all the delights of a man's heart, he says. 
He said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused, refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, you know, trying to grab it, but I can never quite get it. Nothing was gained under the sun. Here's a man who could gain for himself anything he wanted, and he found at the end that he actually had not gained much of anything. Whatever he did gain, it just seemed to fade like wind through his fingers. What if joy isn't so much a set of circumstances in life so much as it is like a state of the soul? What if joy isn't so much a matter of changing your circumstances so much as it is changing your mindset? That's essentially the theme of this little book called the Philippians that we're going to begin going through this morning uh, that's going to show us that um, we can find joy wherever we find ourselves. That's the theme of this little book. We can find joy wherever we find ourselves. You know, this little book of Philippians is only four chapters long. It's one of the shorter books in the Bible, and yet no book talks so much about joy. Sixteen times does Paul, who writes this little letter, sixteen times he references joy. It's almost every few verses, and it culminates near the end of the book when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And that's kind of one of those verses that you've maybe heard if you've grown up in church, and it's the theme of this book. Rejoice in the Lord always in all circumstances. We can have joy. And so, you know, as we finished last week our previous sermon series um, on being better together, the pastoral team over these last few weeks, we've been talking about what was going to come next for us here on Sunday mornings. What were we going to study? We wanted to go through a book of the Bible. It's been a little while since we went through a book, kind of been praying and thinking about what book God wanted us to go through together as a church. Um, what does our church need in this season? And so as I was thinking about that, praying about that, I guess I, I became more mindful um, just kind of through the conversations I've had, through observations, through my own feelings that many of us are battling for joy in life right now. I, I'm certainly feeling it. I certainly feel like I'm kind of struggling to live in a state of joy. And I've talked with many other people, and this seems to be a theme in people's lives. Christians, us, people are battling for joy because we've come through a lot of hard. I think that's a part of it. A lot of us feel weary. And, and some of that hard is hard we've experienced together. You know, it's all the COVID stuff. And now it's, man, you, you look at the news and it's just, there's, there's all these stresses and there's all this strife and inflation and mortgage rates. And a lot of us are experiencing hard, weariness, that's kind of chipping away at joy. And this book is going, I, I think, is just so precious in helping us kind of fight that battle. Because, you know, Paul knew hard. In this book, we don't have a guy who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, right from his ivory tower, this tenured professor at some Ivy League school. No, we have a guy who, in writing this letter, is writing from a prison cell about joy. Now, you might think joy and jail are incompatible, but Paul didn't think so. Not only was he in jail, we'll find out as we go through this book that uh, his imprisonment led to his execution. 
And so I think Paul in this letter has a lot to teach us today about um, living in a state of joy. Now, you might ask, okay, what is a guy 2,000 years ago writing to other people who lived 2,000 years ago in a place far away on the other side of the world for us? Like, what does he really have to say to us? Like, who is Paul? As the letter opens, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the Lord's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Who's Philippi? What does this have to do with me? Well, we know that all Scripture... Paul will say in Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, for training, so that all God's people would be equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. And so as we go through this this morning and over these next few weeks, this is God's Word to you and to me, to us, today in Stonewall. I know he's writing to this place called Philippi 2,000 years ago, but this is God's word to us to help us live in joy. But in order to understand um, what it means, we, it, it, it's help, not even helpful, it's necessary to understand kind of what it meant in its context. So as we begin this journey through Philippians, it'll take us a few months. I, I just kind of want to set the stage a little bit. What is happening here? Now, Paul, you may know, um, was a Jewish man who had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He was actually a persecutor of the church, but he became a believer in Jesus and uh, devoted his life to sharing the good news of Jesus with others, which led him into imprisonment. And um, it, it's likely that Paul is writing from, from prison in Rome. He doesn't say that, but if you go through the book of Acts, you find that near the, near the end he's in prison and he's sent to Rome to make an appeal to Caesar. And it's likely that he's writing this letter from house arrest in chains in Rome where he will write three letters to three different churches. They're called the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all written by Paul while he's in chains in the early 60s. Not the 1960s, okay? The early 60-60s, okay? Um, in the Roman Empire, this letter was written, obviously, by hand, in a scroll. It was sent by him uh, in the hands of Epaphroditus. We find out back to the church in Philippi, Epaphroditus, that's a great name. We need some Epaphroditus in this church. If you're of childbearing age and God gives you a son, okay, we will reward you as a church if you name him Epaphroditus. <laughs> we will put a plaque somewhere in this church on something in your honor if you name your son Epaphroditus, because I just, we need an Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, he was a man that was from the Philippian church, sent by the Philippian church to Rome, to Paul to minister to his needs for a period of time, and now Paul is returning him home to the Philippian church with this letter. What is the relationship between Paul and the Philippian church? Well, like I said, Paul devoted his life after he became a Christian to bring the good news of Jesus to, uh, to the Greek world, to the Gentiles. And so in the book of Acts, you see his first journey. He sent out, put up that map there, Christian. He sent out to, to various places in the Middle East and to what in that time was called Asia, present, it's present-day Turkey. And so he made the rounds to some of these cities Galatia, Colossae, Ephesus, where uh, he founded churches. 
And uh, he returns after this journey back to his home base there in Antioch, where um, after a period of time, he wants to go back to where he was before to, to visit these same people, church, to check in, to see how they're doing, to encourage them. And, and this is where things are picked up in Acts chapter 16, kind of where this, the connection between uh, Paul and the Philippians begins. So he's, it, it says this, Paul and his companions... They were going to travel through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is where they had gone before. They were going to go there again. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, they came to the border of Mycenae. I know that doesn't mean anything to you. They tried to enter uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go there. I don't know what that means. We don't know what, how did God not allow them to go where they planned to go. So they passed by, by Sydney, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Now, Philippi is the, is the principal city of this Roman province called Macedonia. Okay? During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and, help, and, and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God, in one form or another, He had closed these other doors, and through this vision, He had called Him to go to this place called Macedonia, uh, to the city called Philippi. And so He sets off to a place He didn't plan to go. He was called to by God. Uh, and He crossed the, the Bosporus Strait. That's in Istanbul, present-day Istanbul, where He crossed over from the continent of Asia into what we now know as the continent of Europe. Okay? So F- Philippi was the first time that the gospel of Jesus had come to the European continent. It's, you'll see it there. It's in present-day Greece. And so Paul comes to this city where he encounters this woman, almost immediately named Lydia, and he shares the good news of Jesus with Lydia. She becomes a Christian, and others around her, and a little church is formed in Philippi. And as the story continues in Acts chapter 16, as he's preaching the good news of Jesus, he encounters a slave girl who is possessed by a spirit, a, a, a demonic spirit that can uh, foretell the future, a fortune-telling spirit who made this little girl's owners lots of money as they hired her out to tell people their future. And Paul casts this demon out of this girl and releases her from that bondage, which upsets the owners. They create a mob. They create a riot. They come to Paul and uh, Silas and his companions. They beat them with rods, we're told. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison in Philippi, and they were jailed there. And maybe you know how the story goes. They're in prison singing praises to God in the jail cell. We're told, well, the other prisoners are listening to them sing praises to this Jesus. An earthquake takes place that night, kind of destroys the jail, you know, the walls fall down, and all of a sudden they can run out, but they don't, and Paul has an encounter with the jailer, leads him to Christ, and the church in Philippi grows. And so it says, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where the church met, where they met with the other brothers and sisters and they encouraged them, okay? So this is how his relationship with this group of people began. And then he left there and he went to the next city. Um, Now years later, he's in Rome and he's writing them this letter, not to rebuke them, not to correct them. You know, when he writes to some other churches, like he has, he has hard words because there's stuff that's really wrong in their churches he's confronting. But not so much the Philippians. 
He writes primarily to encourage them as they experienced hardship and to increase their joy. So it's in these uh, very first verses in this letter that we first encounter the word joy. Okay, verses, verse 4, we see this. Uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Paul begins to address the church by writing this. He says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will, com- will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so in this first statement of joy, what we see here and what we're going to talk about for a few minutes are the two things that are causes for his own joy. And that should be causes for our joy. There are two things, he says in that one statement, that are a cause for his joy and those two things are connected. What is the first thing? He says, I always pray with joy because of your, do you have it in front of you? It's not on the screen. Do you have it in front of you? Philippians chapter 1, because of your, does someone have it? Partnership. Okay. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, his, your partnership with him from the first day until now. That word partnership is the word Greek word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that if you've been around church. It's the word that we translate fellowship. Because of your fellowship with me, I have joy. Now that word fellowship, what does that even mean? We use it, it's a churchy word. I had fellowship out in the foyer. I mean, biblically, it's a really deep word. It means, it means to participate with somebody in something. So he says, I'm finding joy in the fact that you are participating with me. Have been from day one to now. You, we, you're participating with me in this work. In the work of the gospel. We're serving God together. And he describes later on in the book kind of what that looked like at the very end in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. I've received full payment and I now have enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And so Epaphroditus, okay, they're separated by this great distance. You know, no FaceTiming, emailing. How do you encourage someone from a distance? They're in Philippi. He's in prison in Rome. They said, we're going to send a guy. We're going to send one of our guys, Epaphroditus, to represent us, to bring our encouragement to him. And so they sent him, and Epaphroditus, you know, as, as Paul was living in house arrest, he wasn't behind jails in an institution like Stony Mountain, okay? He was in house arrest. Epaphroditus joined him for the sake of fellowship, encouraging him. And, and Paul says, for me, this has been a source of great joy. Um, joy comes from, at least here at the first we see, it comes from purposeful partnership. You know, isolation, loneliness is a killer of joy. People that are lonely and isolated are not joyful. They cannot be joyful. And, and the sad thing is, you know, when you're isolated and maybe you're depressed, the very thing you need, that fellowship, is the very thing that 
you kind of retreat from sometimes and it just becomes this, this downward cycle. Isolation is a killer of joy. That feeling that you are alone in your circumstances. I don't know if you've felt that way. If you feel like I'm alone. No one knows. No one cares. No one's with me. I am alone. You know, there's a guy in the Old Testament named Prophet, uh, a prophet named Elijah. A great man, a man of God. God called him to, to, to bring God's message to the king and to the nation. And that was hard work. He was faithful to God, but, you know, he was opposed at every turn. He was threatened. He had to flee for his life. And we find the prophet Elijah, his story is recounted in 1 Kings. We're not going to look at much of it, but here he is, this man of God who actually wants to die. He says that. I want to die. I am so down. I feel so alone. I want to die. God calls him to this mountain where God will meet him. It's, it's Mount Sinai. Another name is Mount Horeb. It's the same mountain God led his people where God delivered his law to Moses, the Ten Commandments. God brings Elijah to this place. And it's described in 1 Kings 19. It says, The voice of the Lord came to Elijah there. He says, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Like, I love you, God. I've been doing everything for you. I've done my whole life to you. But the Israelites, they've rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. Here we see this Elijah. He's depressed. He's suicidal because he is so alone. I am the only one left left, except that he's not. So what, how does God respond to him? In verse 18, God says, Elijah, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You are not alone. I have 7,000 others just like you. You need to go find one of them. So the next verse, so Elijah went from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. What is well, the very first thing he, he, he does when he, when he uh, is kind of trying to overcome this, this isolation, this loneliness, this depression? God sends him out for fellowship. He went and he found Elisha and they ministered together. He went from being solo to being partnered. You know, there's a guy uh, in my men's discipleship group. For a few months, me and four other guys, we meet Tuesday evenings uh, to study God's Word together, to just enjoy one another, to pray together, encourage one another. And um, this last week, one of the guys in my group, he was telling me kind of just about his spiritual life. He was saying, um, Rusty, like, before this group, um, I came to church on Sundays, but that's the only thing I was involved in. I came and I sat there, and I, I came because I enjoyed it. It, it, it lifted me up. And, and after I would come to church Monday, I felt great. Tuesday, I didn't feel quite as great, but I still felt okay. By the time I got to the end of the week, I felt miserable. And then I came back to church, 
And, and then I, I was kind of buoyed up again, and Monday was great, but then it faded over time. And he said, and on those times when I missed Sunday, I just felt miserable. Don't you feel miserable when you miss church? Mr. Reese will say, yes, <laughs> I do. Anyway, so he was telling me this, and then he said, but you know what, since I've been a part of this group, like we gather together Tuesdays, and a part of it is we read in our own personal life, we read the same scripture through the week, and we're praying for one another through the week, and we're doing this, we're not, we're not all in the same room the whole time, we come together just once a week, but we're doing the same thing through the week, and then I, we come together on Tuesday, he says, you know what I found, Rusty? I don't fade. I don't start here and go like this. I find like I'm actually being carried along. He said, it's made all the difference in the world for me. And I was happy to hear that. But you know what? Erica actually asked me the other day how I was doing. And I always lie and say fine. Because I'm a guy. Uh, but yeah, actually something I said to her that last week was, you know what? I really love Tuesdays evenings. Because kind of like Elijah, like I can go about doing God's work, meeting this and that. You know, you're doing God's work. But that in and of itself doesn't lead to joy. I said, you know, I said to her, you know, after I'm with those guys, like that is the best time of my week. That's made a real difference for me. Um, joy in purposeful partnership. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Fellowship multiplies our joys and it divides our sorrows as we carry one another's burdens. Joy is a communal exercise. Hey, by the way, those little groups, if that's like the sort of thing that you want to be a part of, a little group of men, a little group of women, like practicing that together, would you speak with me? I'd love to hear from you. So the first thing Paul says he finds joy in here, he finds joy in this fellowship, this partnership he has with others, that he is not alone. Joy is a communal exercise. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues, and he's going to show that this fellowship, this partnership with one another, that's kind of horizontal, actually proceeds from this kind of vertical and deeper partnership fellowship with God. Like, look what he says in verse 6. So he says, I, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. So his joy also comes from confidence in this. What is this? That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I find joy in my confidence that he who began a good work in you and me will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What is the work that he's talking about? The work that God has begun. Is he talking about like some commitment that God moved the Philippians to make? Like, hey, Paul, we're going to take up an offering. We're going to send it to you to help meet your needs. And he's going, man, that's great. You know, I... I, I'm confident that you're going to complete that work with God's help, right? And, and you're, going to, you're going to do that. Is that what he's talking about here? What is that work? And it's clear he's not talking about that because 
he says, this is a work that's going to be completed, not tomorrow, not next month or next year. This is a work that will find its completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the day of Jesus Christ? You see, in both the Old and New Testament, you, you, you hear this about this day, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you know, Isaiah, you see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Joel. Here's a few examples. Ezekiel, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations. This is a day of judgment on the wickedness of the world. It's a day of reckoning where all will be set right, while justice will prevail. Alas, Joel says, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. This is a day where God executes perfect justice and judgment in the world. This is a day that they were looking forward to. Now you see Jesus in John chapter 5 verse 27, Jesus says that he, that is God the Father, has given him, himself, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I am the one who has authority to execute judgment. That's my work. I will do that. I have that authority. And he'll say in Luke 17, for the Son of Man, that's a title Jesus Uh, It's a biblical title for himself. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. What is he talking about? He's talking about the day he comes back. The day that we're told elsewhere will be like a thief in the night. It'll be like lightning. So everyone will see it from east to west. As everybody sees lightning, this will be a day that is so evident. The day that Jesus returns to do what? To fulfill that sort of judgment fully and finally. To right every wrong. This is the day of Jesus Christ. A day that Paul will talk about again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 to 9. Listen to this. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? The day when Jesus is revealed, the day he comes again. He will keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So so what is this day of the Lord? This is the end. So when he says... The, go- the work that God has begun, he will bring to completion. He's talking here about, he's not talking about next month or next, he's talking about your whole life. At the end of your life, God will complete the work he had begun until that day. What is this work that God has begun. Well, he said he didn't say God has begun this work for you, but in you. He's not talking about the cross here, right? The, the, the cross is what God has done for you, which is inextricably, inextricably, inextricably. Oh, I should try not to speak big words. Help me out. Inextricably. Inextricably? Can you rub that from the YouTube recording? You take that part out. 
The work of God on the cross is linked to the work in us. But he's not talking about the work that God has done for you. He's talking about the work that he's begun in you. He began in you something. And Paul has just said, uh, you know, they had been partnered with him from the very first day till now. So what is this beginning of this work in them? Well, he's talking about the day when they heard the good news of Jesus and they believed. They gave their life in faith to Jesus Christ. He says, on that day, God began a work in you. It was the day in which you believed in that message. And you know what? That wasn't you doing work. That was God beginning a work in you. Like just how God sent Paul to Philippi. It wasn't the Philippians writing him a letter saying, hey, we've heard of you, Paul. Could you come and help us? It was God sending to Paul an example, a representative in a dream, a Macedonian man in a dream saying, can you come help us? It wasn't them saying that. That was God saying that. It was a work of God bringing Paul to these people to deliver that life-changing message. It was a work that God had begun, which is why Paul will say in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And even this faith isn't of your own. It is a gift of God. The faith you have is a faith that God has worked in you to bring you to life. You might be born again, made new, changed, forgiven, brought into fellowship with God. God began that work the day you believed. And what Paul is saying here is, if God began it, he will finish it. Because God doesn't begin anything, he doesn't finish. Isn't that what he said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he said, or chapter 1 verse 7 to 9, he said, God will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on that day for God is faithful. He is the one who will sustain you to the end. He doesn't just start you and then send you out to finish the work. He finishes the work that he begins in you. And he'll put it this way when he writes to the uh, Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24, Paul says to them, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're like, yeah, I sure hope so. I sure hope I make it to that day. I sure hope I'm going to be okay. And then he says, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The one who calls you is faithful, and who will do it? Who will do it? He will do it. He will bring you, sustain you, and bring you to completion on that day. He will sanctify you. That word of, that, that, that work in your life of refining you and preserving your faith. He will preserve your faith so that you will persevere to the end. I am sure of this. Or Paul would say in Romans 8, he says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I know some people struggle with that verse. He doesn't say all things are good. Cancer is good. The loss of a child is good. This is, he doesn't say those things are good. He says in all things, good and bad, and everything in between, in all things, God is working. God never stops working. Thank you, Audrey. Bonus points for you, by the way. 
in heaven. I'm not sure I'm allowed to give that out, actually, technically. In all things, God has worked for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. And I just love the way He says it. 100% of the people He calls, He justifies. 100% of the people He justifies, He glorifies, which is to say He brings them to the end, to the very completion. Nothing can hinder God from finishing what He has started. If God has begun a work in you by faith in His Son, He will continue that work till it's done and nothing will stop Him. How many times have you started a project you didn't finish? Anyone? In my um, bathroom at home, my wife keeps saying it's our bathroom, technically, Rusty, but um, our main bathroom... A few months ago, we started a renovation. There still isn't knobs, handles on the drawers or the cabinets. And so, you know, when you need more toilet paper that's kind of in the cabinets, you have to like, I have to get on my knees. I put my finger underneath the door, the back of the door, and then I, and I open it. And, and in order to open the drawer with the toothpaste in it, I first have to go and open the cabinet door and then put my hand underneath the drawer, you know, the floor of the drawer, and then I go like this. Because how else do you open a drawer? So I go like this, and I open it. And my wife's like, why don't you just finish it? I said, but this way, a robber comes in, they can't get at our toothpaste. Like, our toothpaste <laughs> is safe. Safest toothpaste in all of Stonewall, right there. It's been months. Honestly, I don't know how much longer it's going to be. Um, because it's just kind of the way I roll. I, I've been working on my PhD projects half done. You heard that? It's just, I never heard that before. Someone said it in between the services. I like that. I've been working on my PhD. So, so maybe you know what that's like to start a finish or st start a project but not finish it. What Paul is saying here is, hey, guy, you may be afraid that um, God may lose interest in you. He won't. You might be afraid that, that maybe um, he may tire of his work, he won't. You, you, you may think that a time might come for one reason or another, he just may abandon you, he won't. If he has begun a work, he will complete it in you because God always finishes what he begins. And, and he said, that's true for you, that's true for me, that's true for everyone that believes in Jesus, and he says, that gives me joy. Even, even when I'm in jail, especially when I'm in jail, that gives me joy. Now, Paul is not saying, hey, Christians, be passive. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do. That's not what he's saying. Like, don't misunderstand that because a little bit later in chapter 3, he'll talk about his own striving. He says, I haven't already obtained all this. I haven't arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. He's striving. It doesn't mean we don't pursue our own completion. For he, for he said in, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, my, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So he's saying it doesn't matter what you do. He's saying like, obey, strive, pursue your completion, persevere. Persevere. 
But when you do so, know that your work is not the decisive work. God's work is decisive. God is working in you. You have to work that out, but you will work that out because God is working in you to work that out of you. God's work is decisive. So yes, we, not, we must pursue our completion. We must persevere. We must follow. We must strive to obey. But it is God who is bringing that about. And if he started it, he will finish. And there's nothing that can stop him because God is sovereign. That means two things. It means A, God can do it, and B, God will do it. He is sovereign. There's nothing that can stop. There's no circumstance that can happen that can stop God from doing that work in your life. No, no, no cancer diagnosis, no financial situation, no marital situation, you know, like no world war. There's nothing that can stop God from doing and completing that work. For He is sovereign over all things and He is faithful. He can do it and He will do it. So this is my definition of joy, kind of coming from this Statement of Paul here, it's this, joy is fellowship with and confidence in a God who is sovereign and faithful. What is joy? It's that. It's fellowship with and confidence in a God who is sovereign and faithful. And that is a joy that can be real in all circumstances. Because God is at work in all circumstances. And this is where it's just really important kind of bringing this to a close that we need to distinguish between joy and happiness because sometimes we conflate those two. And maybe, maybe we Christians are the worst at that because we might think or feel some pressure on ourselves or put pressure on others that to be a Christian, to have the joy of the Lord means just to, be, just to walk above the clouds and not feel impacted by any of the things we face. Hey, take that frown off your pay, face. Turn it upside down. Like, you're a Christian. You should always smile. That's not what Paul is saying. We need to distinguish between joy and happiness. He's not saying, the, the answer to the question, how are you doing, Christian, should always be, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Happiness is related to external circumstances. Pleasure in a moment, it's temporary. Joy is an inner state of the soul because joy is founded on fellowship with a God who in all things is at work because He is sovereign and faithful. And a picture that I think helps me think about that difference between joy and, and, and uh, happiness is a hurricane in an ocean. You know, from time to time in the news, we'll see hurricanes and we kind of know what the video looks like. <sharp inhale> Reporters being blown away, houses being washed away, land is actually being changed as pieces of land, sandbars are being washed away, all like just the tumultuous water. But I was reading the other day that... As, as tumultuous as things look on the surface, as turbulent as they are, they say that, um, that they have never recorded uh, a hurricane uh, impacting the water below 90 meters. That's the furthest down that that can actually disturb the water. 90 meters, that's 300 feet. That's, just for frame of reference, that's the Statue of Liberty. Even the biggest storm, they notice a little bit at 90 meters, but beyond that, nothing changes. Nothing changes 
It's stable. On the surface, with the wind and the waves, it's tumultuous and turbulent, but down deep, nothing changes. It's tranquil. It's stable. It's dependable. Happiness is what happens at the surface. Okay? Joy is in the depths. That's what he's saying here. Don't conflate the two, because both can be true at the same time. He's not saying when the hurricane comes, everything should be calm up top. No, he's not. He's saying even when things aren't, even when the storm comes, you have, you have deep water in Jesus. You are not shallow, Christians. Your fellowship with God is deep water, and joy is not found at the surface. Joy is found in the depths. So let's be clear, joy doesn't mean you always have to smile on your face. Joy is not synonymous with laughter. Joy and grief are not incompatible. Joy and sadness and joy and anger are not incompatible. Things can rage on the surface. Circumstances can change but that, that, that may give us happiness or take away happiness. But regardless of all of that, Paul says, in Jesus... We have this depths of joy where nothing can actually change what's happening there. That's where joy is found. Joy is found in the deep water where God is sovereign and God is faithful and we are confident in that. That's where our joy is rooted. Confidence in a God who is sovereign and faithful. What God has begun, He will bring to completion. That's that's where our joy comes from. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what sort of hard you're going through, kind of what battles you're facing. But but I want you to be encouraged. If you are someone in whom God has begun that work by faith in His Son... He will continue that work. Nothing will stop him. And he will bring that work to completion on the day of Jesus. And nothing will stop him. In that we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great reality, which is our reality today as those who know you, that we have a life that is absolutely secure in your hands. You have taken hold of us and you will not let go of us. We thank you, God, that you began that work in us. That wasn't us seeking you down. That was you coming to us and by your Spirit calling us to yourself that we might receive this this life. I thank you, God, that as those who... um, who belong to you, Lord, that you are, are working in, in ways that we can see and in ways that we can't see and we don't have to see it, Lord. Sometimes we're just living on the surface and that's all we can see, what's happening up there. But Lord, I just thank you that we can have this confidence that down in the depths, nothing is disturbed. Nothing has changed. Lord, I just pray that in everything that we're facing, um, and you know, Lord, everything that we're going through, 
as a church, as families, as individuals. Lord, I just pray that you would enable us um, to just have that confidence and find our joy there in the depths of your faithfulness, in the depths of your sovereignty. So God, as we've heard your word, um, we're, we're those that are called now to put it into practice, to obey that. So Lord, would you show each one of us, would you speak to us and just show us what it would look like for us um, to find joy in those depths? In Jesus' name, amen.